Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Elliot Kleinberg, author of the book Black Cloud, The Deadly Hurricane of 1928. They took all the white victims and they put them in a mass grave in the city cemetery in West Palm Beach, let families try to identify them, tag them, everything. But 674 black victims were literally dumped in a hole. We'll discuss newspaper accounts of the Patriot Rebellion in Florida. It plays a really important part, not only in Florida's history, but really this history of the Southeast in the early history of the United States. And we'll begin a three-part series of reports on sea level rise in historic St. Augustine. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. powerful hurricane can be terrifying. The darkened skies, howling winds, and pelting rain can be harrowing. The hurricane of 1928 was particularly devastating to residents of South Florida and was the second deadliest storm to hit North America. Elliot Kleinberg is author of the book Black Cloud, The Deadly Hurricane of 1928, now republished by the Florida Historical Society Press. Growing up in South Florida and having actually gone through some hurricanes as a child, uh, by the time I got to the Palm Beach Post in 1987, I thought I knew everything about every hurricane that had struck Florida. Of course, I was completely wrong. Uh, I naturally gravitated towards hurricanes, I believe, because uh, as a Florida native and somebody fascinated with Florida history and everything about Florida, uh, when you talk about Florida, you have to talk about hurricanes. And because they're such a profound event, and because as a journalist, uh, a hurricane is one of the most exciting news stories in the world because you have all that drama in advance that you don't get with an earthquake or a tornado. Of course, once the hurricane hits, it's not a fun story at all. Uh, when I got to the paper in 1987, uh, I was shocked to discover, and I hate to use the word shocked, but uh, I, I was surprised to discover that uh, I knew very little about this tremendous hurricane. Um, in 1988, for the 60th anniversary of the storm, uh, I was sent out to uh, Belle Glade to cover a commemorative event. And the more I talked to these people, I said, how is it possible that this profound hurricane happened and most of the world doesn't know anything about it? 
1928 hurricane played a pivotal role in Zora Neale Hurston's 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. The storm leads to tragedy for the novel's protagonist, Janie Crawford, while she and her lover, Tea Cake, are living as migrant workers in the Everglades. People have no idea that the hurricane in Zora's book was a real hurricane. Now, it should be pointed out that she wasn't there during the hurricane, but she had lived in Belglade before the hurricane. She was in the islands when the hurricane struck. She came back to Florida later, talked to people who had gone through the hurricane. She takes some literary license with the hurricane. She gets a 200-mile-an-hour winds, and she uh, describes a gigantic tidal wave, which isn't exactly how it happened. It was more like a slow and steady rise, which nevertheless drowned everybody because there was nowhere for them to go. Uh, but certainly... Uh, in talking about the hurricane and its effect on the black people, the migrant workers in the glades, she was spot on. Today, meteorologists armed with satellite imagery track every movement of a hurricane for weeks before landfall, providing multiple models of possible paths a storm might take. In 1928, storm forecasting was not as sophisticated. As remarkable as it is to imagine now, back then hurricanes would travel through the ocean for days before anybody knew they existed. In the case of this storm, a ship in the Eastern Caribbean came across it, which is always a bad thing, and telegraphed about the storm, and that's the first time they knew about it. It then tore through the islands in just the most god-awful way, because the problem with those islands is they're small targets, so they don't get hit as much as uh, a big place like Florida, but when they do get hit, they get clobbered, and there's no place to run. And this thing just tore up all these little islands in the Eastern Caribbean, and then it got to Puerto Rico, and I always say that if it stopped at Puerto Rico, everybody would be writing books about the great Puerto Rico hurricane of 1928 because it smashed the island from one end to the other, killed anywhere between 600 and probably 2,000 people. The night before the 1928 hurricane struck Florida, weather officials were saying that the storm was not going to hit the state. It made landfall near West Palm Beach on September 16th. Even if good information had been available, Elliot Kleinberg says it might not have made a difference. Well, first of all, to say that they knew that they knew or didn't hear the hurricane warnings presumes that they had a radio, which in 1928 a lot of people didn't. There certainly wasn't any television. Uh, the newspapers, and I'm a newspaper guy, but a newspaper is only as good as its deadline, which is 12 to 15 hours. But the other thing is, even if they knew, where could they go? Uh, if you were out there in those little towns along Lake Okeechobee, you had three options. One was to go west to Fort Myers, which at the time, Highway 27 and, and the roads extended to Fort Myers weren't even built yet, so you couldn't go that way. There's a tiny two-lane road along the east shore of Lake Okeechobee, which even today I've made that road. It's not an easy drive. And the only other way to go was towards the coast. Well, you certainly wouldn't go there. And all of that presumes that you had a car, which A, in 1928 wasn't a given, and B, if you were a poor black migrant worker, wasn't a given. So they really literally had nowhere to run. An estimated 2,500 Floridians were killed by the 1928 hurricane, and a disproportionate number of those people were African American. After the storm, white victims and black victims were treated very differently. For health reasons, all of the bodies had to be quickly placed into mass graves. In 1928, uh a black person was pretty much invisible. And these were black migrant workers from either the Deep South or the Caribbean. In a lot of cases, their boss didn't even know their last name. So there was nobody there to say, where's my son, where's my father, where's my brother? Uh, after the storm, they had to put these bodies into mass graves. And this was a health thing. This part was not disputable. But they took all the white victims and they put them in a, white, in a mass grave in the city cemetery in West Palm Beach, let families try to identify them, tag them, everything. 
But 674 black victims were literally dumped in a hole. I mean, they just dug a hole and they dumped them in. Uh, I've interviewed people that said, I think my family's down there. I don't know. Nobody gave me a chance to look for the body before they dumped them in. And then the other great tragedy is that for the next 60 years, this mass grave was unmarked. Now, could you imagine a place in Florida or anywhere in America where there are 700 bodies in a hole, and not just 700 bodies, but 700 victims of one of the most profound events in U.S. history that nobody ever heard of, and they've been in that hole for 60 years that nobody noticed. And at one point, they rerouted a road over so that part of it was over the mass grave. Now, I always say, if these have been 700 white people, or if this hurricane had smashed uh, downtown West Palm Beach and killed 3,000 white businessmen, or if it would have smashed a black tie affair out in Palm Beach, they'd still be talking about it. The unmarked mass grave of black storm victims is located at what is now the corner of Tamarind Avenue and 25th Street, about two miles northwest of downtown West Palm Beach. To add insult to injury, in the aftermath of the hurricane, black survivors were forced into unpaid labor to conduct cleanup efforts. Many blacks were conscripted, and that's a very nice word for meaning basically kidnapped, uh, and forced to help with the cleanup, weren't paid, weren't allowed to leave. Um, you know, I remember at one point, the, the first book, the first publisher of the book, uh, the editor called me up and said, uh, who made the decision to put the blacks in one grave and the whites in another? And I said, Phil, you must have been sleeping in history class. Florida was in the Deep South in 1928. I mean, some people find that hard to believe now, but that was a given. And it was a given that blacks were, that whites were allowed to conscript blacks to do whatever they wanted, and the blacks couldn't say anything about it. And so many blacks were forced to clean up and literally collect bodies, help put them in graves. And that brought us to the story of Coot Simpson, who's probably the most profound uh, person in my book, uh, because he didn't die directly of the hurricane. He was conscripted uh, to help clean up. And it, after three straight days, without his family knowing where he was, he said, listen, I got to get back to my family. And the National Guardsman uh, said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. And the National Guardsman shot him in the back and killed him. Well, of course, uh, no jury, no grand jury, no coroner's inquest in 1928 was going to do anything to a white National Guardsman for shooting a black man in the back. So I say that Coot Simpson was, was a indirect victim of the hurricane, but he was also a direct victim of living in Florida in 1928. A statue depicting a family running from the storm commemorates the victims of the 1928 hurricane in Belle Glade, Florida. Still, the tragedy has been replaced in the national consciousness by other impactful storms, such as the Labor Day hurricane of 1935, and more recently, Andrew, Katrina, Matthew, Irma, and Michael. Although the 1928 hurricane is often overlooked, Elliot Kleinberg says the storm still provides valuable lessons. It's understandable why people forget about this hurricane when the next one comes along. It's the old shiny object thing. Uh, and in the 1928 hurricane, as soon as everybody was, was, was talking about the 1928 hurricane, then all of a sudden we had the stock market crash, and then we had the Depression, and then we had the Labor Day storm, and then we had World War II. And after a while, you know, people were moving on to other things. Uh, but this was the second deadliest natural disaster of any kind in the history of the United States. And it staggers me that people have not heard of it. People in Palm Beach County have not heard of it. Uh, this killed—the only hurricane that ever killed more people than the 1928 hurricane was the Great Galveston Storm of 1900, which killed anywhere between 6,000 and 10,000 people. And, you know, I'll tip my hat. That's the, that's the champ. Uh, but this hurricane, the official death toll was 1,836. But even when they established it 
1929, they said, no, we know this is probably wrong. It's really probably close. The official death toll was changed on the 75th anniversary in 2003 to 2,500. Not as the result of any new research, but just an acknowledgement that the first number was too low. But then if you add all the people that were killed in Puerto Rico and other U.S. possessions, now you're talking about a hurricane that probably killed 4,000 or 5,000 U.S. citizens. And then if you add in the islands that in the Caribbean that were, they were still tracking this thing in, in Canada, it killed people in New Jersey. So if you add everything together, all the people that this hurricane killed, it probably killed 6,000 or 7,000 people. It killed more people than Katrina. Katrina, you know, people are already, when, when, Andrew, when Andrew was the big thing, and then Katrina replaced Andrew. But you know what? Andrew was a Category 5 hurricane, one of only three to strike North America in the 20th century, and, but it only killed 15 people. Katrina was a Category 1 hurricane, but it killed thousands. So, and then there's this hurricane that nobody's ever heard of, nobody can remember. And there are so many lessons from this storm that can be uh, current today. One, of course, being uh, the bad forecasts. Uh, and, and, and the forecasters now even talk about the fact that that is why we give such a general forecast. We're not going to do what they did back then, which just say, oh, it's not going to hit Florida. Uh, the other thing is, is the great reminder that the biggest killer in a hurricane is not wind, it's water. So that's why you get a Category 5 hurricane like Andrew striking one of the major metropolitan parts of America and killing only 15 people. But you get this hurricane, what did it do? It drowned everybody. A freshwater lake jumping its banks in Florida. Who'd have guessed it? So that, and then the other story, of course, of the 1920 hurricane is the story that we understand right now, which is amnesia. Not long after the 28 hurricane, I'm sure people were on getting back to their lives. And the hurricane people and the emergency managers in Florida right now are terrified because they know that people have short memories. And all of those are lessons that we can get from the 1928 hurricane. Elliot Kleinberg is author of the book Black Cloud, The Deadly 1928 Hurricane, now republished by the Florida Historical Society Press. Just sit in the dark, singing these This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program and watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers. You can also find out about upcoming events like the 4th Annual Florida Frontiers Festival and the 2020 Caribbean Conference Cruise. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, most people have heard of the War of 1812, but not necessarily the Patriot Rebellion in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And, and even the War of 1812, many historians would argue, were part of the larger Napoleonic Wars. So this is really kind of a subset of a subset occurring in colonial Florida at the beginning of the 19th century. But it plays a really important part, not only in Florida's history, but really this history of the Southeast in the early history of the United States, in the beginnings of this expansionist period in America's history. And the Patriot Rebellion, in, in a nutshell, essentially was an invasion by American-backed forces 
forces of mostly Georgians who crossed into northeast Florida, which was then a Spanish colony. This is what we call the, the second Spanish period, invaded the sovereign territory and took Amelia Island in northeast Florida. They laid siege to the city of St. Augustine. They attacked a number of smaller Spanish outposts and forts along the northern border of Florida. They invaded West Florida. They took Mobile, which was part of West Florida at the time, moved in on Pensacola. And a lot of the conflict was under the guise of protecting Georgians or Georgia property from Indian attacks, specifically from the Seminole Indians. So they qualify these attacks as being part of kind of a national defense. So in a lot of the contemporary accounts that you read, they're going after not necessarily the Spanish, but they're going after the Seminole Indians who are finding refuge within Spanish-held territory, who they feel are taking in their runaway slaves from southern plantations and are becoming part of their kinship group which they see as a threat at that time period. So for them, it's a legitimate threat. And these Georgians invade Florida, and it becomes what they're trying to do is a site of rebellion. That's what we call it, the Patriot Rebellion or Patriot War. What they thought is that they could waltz into East Florida. All of these Spanish citizens would support their cause, would overthrow the yoke of, of Spanish colonial power, and they would then hand over Florida to the United States. So that's why I said it was kind of supported by the U.S. government, but not directly. So they were sort of acting through several American agents, if you will. So it was a very convoluted, very complex period in Florida's history, and it involved this kind of borderlands clash of colonial powers. And again, it marks really the beginning of this expansion of American territorialism. And although the Patriot Rebellion is sometimes overlooked today, national newspapers were covering it at the time. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at today is straight from the Florida Historical Society Archives and Library. And this is an original 1812-1813 compilation of the Weekly Register newspaper articles. And the Weekly Register was one of the most popular American periodicals at the time. It had a circulation of about 4,000 individuals, and it covered everything that was going on in the United States. And that, of course, included what we would now call the Patriot War or the Patriot Rebellion. And it became part of, like you said, the broad War of 1812, but they're still reporting specifically about what's happening in Florida. Our report started in, in 1812, and this is a uh, an article that was published in the Weekly Register, September 12, 1812, and it's actually a letter from the U.S. Secretary of State to D.B. Mitchell, who was the governor of Georgia. Now, keep in mind that Georgia was a big instigator in this rebellion. They were mostly Georgia militia members who were invading northeast Florida. And there's one paragraph in particular I'd like to read that kind of gives the, the U.S. views, at least initially. The Secretary of State says here, It is the desire of the president that you should turn your attention and direct your efforts in the first instance to a restoration of that state of things in the province, which existed before the late transactions. The executive considers it proper to restore back to the Spanish authorities Amelia Island and such other parts, if any, of East Florida as may have thus been taken from them, unquote. There's a lot of evidence that's been uncovered recently, at least, that shows that there was approval, at least, by the executive office of the president and the U.S. Congress to, they didn't want to go to war with Spain, but Spain was allied with the English. So the War of 1812 was a great reason to continue military efforts in East Florida and actually allow these militia members to take control of Amelia Island, of cities in West Florida, and then maintain a presence there throughout the war. So it was a matter of kind of covertly getting their claws into Florida without declaring outright war. And as we read through some of these articles, you can see the tone begin to change a little bit. 
we'll look at another article. Now, this is an article dated December 5th, 1812, and it's under events of the war. And it says here, quote, to the South, we have also looked with great anxiety, but we have no particulars further than that the legislature of Georgia, considering that state as an imminent danger, were about to adapt measures having perhaps for their ulterior objective, the seizure of Florida, or at least the dispersion of the hostile force. Unquote. And the words ulterior and hostile are in italics, so there's a little tongue-in-cheek there, but, but at least the, the editors of the newspaper understand that there are motivations to try and take this territory. So even though the U.S. wasn't directly involved, there was some understanding at least that that was the motivation, was that the United States really wanted to take Florida from Spanish control. Then if we fast forward a little bit, we'll look at January 23rd, 1813. This is another section under events of the war, and they say here, quote, the Spanish force in St. Augustine is said to consist of 400 white and 500 black troops. An attack upon it is anticipated, unquote. Now, they did attack St. Augustine in March of that year, and they actually laid siege to the city of St. Augustine. But unfortunately for the rebels, the Spanish never gave up. Now, the Castillo de San Marcos was a formidable fortress, and they didn't give it up. So they actually held on to the city. Eventually what happened is that the militias ended up moving north, a rebellion did not materialize, and the Spanish actually kept control of the colony. So by 1814, attempts at establishing a Republic of East Florida had failed. The United States Congress did not vote in favor of outwardly supporting the military effort, so it never really got off the ground. Other than a 20-year period when the British controlled Florida in the late 1700s, Florida was a Spanish territory from the 1500s, and as you pointed out, beginning with the Patriot Rebellion, that was all about to change. Yeah, that's right. That's probably the most important takeaway, at least, from the Patriot Rebellion, is that this period, as many historians, including James Cusick, who wrote a, a famous book on, on the topic called The Other War of 1812, he argues that this period really marks the beginning of the end for the Spanish. Now, it wasn't until 1819 that the United States and Spain signed the Adams-Onis Treaty, which was ratified in 1821, officially handing Florida over to the United States. But by 1814, the war had taken its toll on, on Spanish control. And that, and that includes events that were going on in Europe as well, but they just couldn't hold on to Florida. And the pressure from the United States to move into Florida was really kind of changing the tide. And you can see that even in the public opinion of national newspapers. So the age of diplomatic acquisition of territory was over, and now the U.S. public was becoming accustomed to and actually supporting these armed insurrections and these armed rebellions to try and expand the U.S. territory and control the entire eastern seaboard. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see some of the articles from the Weekly Register that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Climate change is having a negative impact on historic sites in Florida. Levi Watson is a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. He begins our three-part series looking at sea level rise in St. Augustine. St. Augustine, the nation's oldest city, sits on the Matanzas River, 
part of Florida's intercoastal waterway. When the Spanish established the city in 1565, it was a defensible position from foreign threats. Today, St. Augustine's historic buildings and monuments face a different threat, sea level rise. One of the monuments that is in particular danger is the monument to the U.S. soldiers who died during the Dade Massacre in 1835. I sat down with Ben DiBiase, archivist at the Florida Historical Society Research Library, to talk about the Dade Massacre and the significance of the monument, which is located in the National Cemetery at the St. Francis Barracks. The Second Seminole War started in December of 1835 with the surprise attack on General Dade's column of troops that were heading from present-day Tampa to near present-day Ocala. They were attacked. Virtually everyone was killed, and it became a national and international incident. Public outcry over the incident led to the construction of a monument at the recently established National Cemetery at the St. Francis Barracks in St. Augustine. The Dade Massacre became really the touchstone for the Second Seminole War. It became the incident. And the soldiers, there were about 100, just over 100 soldiers who were killed at the Dade Battlefield, later termed the Dade Massacre site. And those soldiers were exhumed, their, their remains were exhumed, and they were brought to St. Augustine and buried under these very large coquina pyramids. The St. Francis Barracks is located between the Matanzas River and the man-made Maria Sanchez Lake. Because of its low elevation and location between two bodies of water, St. Augustine's National Cemetery is particularly vulnerable to the effects of sea level rise. The Monument to the Soldiers of the Dades Massacre is one of the many historic monuments in St. Augustine, in danger of being lost to permanent inundation. I asked DiBiase what the Dade Monument means for us today. For most Floridians, there's a detachment from Florida's history. A lot of people who live here, even people who grew up here, native Floridians, we often don't understand the importance and the impact of the events that have occurred in our state, part of our state's history, and that certainly includes the Seminole Wars. So any kind of visible reminder of that conflict and the complexity of the Indian removal time period, 1830s, 1840s, it's vitally important. The Seminole Wars, and the Second Seminole War in particular, were crucial in shaping the image of Florida in the minds of Americans at the time. But very few physical reminders of the wars remain today. The forts that were constructed were often hastily built. They were built out of wood. And within the next few decades after the end of the war, the remaining lumber was repurposed by early pioneers. And the earthen mounds have just been grown over and covered with trees and grass and things like that. And, and houses are built on top of them, some of these sites. Really, the only thing that remains are some of the names, like Fort Lauderdale, Fort Myers. The place names can trace their origin back to the Seminole Wars period. But outside of that, there's, there's very little in terms of tangible remains, save for the markers that are at the National Cemetery in St. Augustine, those pyramids, those very prominent large pyramids. That's one of the few artifacts that we can point to and say that's a direct relation to what occurred in the 1830s and 1840s. This segment is the first of a three-part series in which I look at climate change in St. Augustine. In following segments, I sit down with Charles Tingley of the St. Augustine Historical Society to talk about St. Augustine's history with storms. We know that St. Augustine was born out of a storm. And Jessica Beach, an engineer in St. Augustine's Public Works Department, to discuss how the city is working to mitigate problems related to stormwater and sea level rise. 
the hydraulics of it is challenging because we are low and flat. <laughs> and so putting all of that infrastructure in place and designing it, it's, there's definitely challenges with it. Levi Watson is a graduate student in public history at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join the conversation on Facebook, and listen to us as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Levi Watson, and our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.